I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The action fast and furious at the onset. These guys are going to be spent. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayat. There are people who think that wrestling is an ignoble sport. Wrestling is not a sport. It is a spectacle. In 1954, French philosopher and critic Roland Barthes ventured into one of the seedier corners of Paris to watch a little wrestling. Wrestling is performed in second-rate halls, where the public is completely uninterested in knowing whether the contest is rigged or not. And rightly so. Bart wasn't interested in whether professional wrestling was fake. He just wanted to know what it meant. Wrestling is a pantomime, infinitely more efficient than the dramatic pantomime, for the wrestler's gesture needs no anecdote to appear true. That's because wrestling isn't fake. Sure, the punches are pulled and the outcome is preordained, but what's happening in the ring is real. And today, in rented halls, high school gymnasiums and local arenas across North America, professional wrestlers are still going at it. It's full of niceness and joy in there. No one's angry, no one's mad. A lot of hits and slams and smacks, maybe. That's quite a spectacle. You'll see hard-hitting stuff, man. I mean, uh, I will say this. There's even a couple of wrestlers on our card tonight that I haven't seen. And just like in the 50s, philosophers are still trying to figure out what it means. It can be hard for people to understand that it doesn't matter if you know that it's fake. I think that the word fake is a bad word to use here because I I don't think that that's what wrestling is. I think there are layers of reality to wrestling. It is presenting you with the artifice up front, whereas everything else is concealing it. This documentary from Matthew Lazen Ryder explores questions of truth, morality, and joy through professional wrestling. This is Keeping Kayfabe, the philosophy of pro wrestling. We live off stories in wrestling. We create stories in wrestling all the time. It is a very cathartic feeling being able to see the bad guy get his comeuppance. Great matches always have the comeuppance because people are like, yeah, it's like, thank God, there is justice in the world. That guy who's been hitting everyone in the nuts just got bagged 12 times. This is great. (laughs) That's Adam Ryder, a.k.a. the Haida heartthrob. 
In the theater next to a high school in the Vancouver suburb of Port Coquitlam, the Haida heartthrob is up against Vaughn Vertigo from Port Hope, Ontario. Vaughn looking to fly, but he's caught by Ryder. Rolls through a fireman's carry and will shake that tush into an elbow drop. This is indie pro wrestling. On this crowd here at the Terry Fox Theater, giving it a healthy ovation. You know what, I have an appreciation for wrestling because I know they put in so much work behind the scenes to put on a good show. Outside in the parking lot, it's a sunny summer evening and friends, family and local wrestling fans are here for a tailgate. These people are hurting themselves out there and working hard. I find myself laughing, mostly. You're in it. You're going to get sweat thrown on you. you got to be paying attention. I mean, if you'd have told me coming out of a pandemic when the world shut down, that independent wrestling would be the thing that would gain the traction, I might have questioned your sobriety. Rob Fay is the owner and general manager of Nation Extreme Wrestling, or NEW, the promoter putting on the show tonight. I don't know, we're, we're dumb or just dumb luck, but we decided that we were going to start right in the middle of a pandemic. Our first show, we had to make sure that we had everybody vaxxed. We had to have masks in place. I mean, wrestlers weren't afraid to wear masks in the ring. It wasn't a surprise. And I also think with the world kind of tilted the way that it is right now, people are just happy to not have to worry about the world for a little while. While there are lots of little promoters around Canada and the United States, like NEW, the biggest wrestling promotion in North America is still WWE, or World Wrestling Entertainment. Formerly the WWF, it was the home of classic wrestlers like Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, and Ric Flair. But other companies are chipping away at its dominance. Companies like New Japan Pro Wrestling out of Tokyo, and All Elite Wrestling out of Jacksonville, Florida. And while a smaller promoter like NEW draws a happy little crowd of friends and families in Port Coquitlam, this is what an NEW show sounds like in downtown Vancouver. This sold-out crowd at the Commodore Ballroom absolutely loves Adam Ryder. Wow! A deafening ovation for the man they call the Haida Heartthrob. I feed off the crowd. I love every bit of it. The trick is with wrestling is you got to stand out in some way. You have to be desirable in some way. Whether it be you can be a comedy gig, you could be a serious gig, you could be like the best technical wrestler in the world. No one, no one knows what it is till it's out there. So the most creative minds here can flourish as long as they understand it's to make the audience feel something. What an ovation for the high to heart drop. So all over North America, there are new promoters and new wrestlers. But there's another new player in the world of professional wrestling. It's the PWSA, the Professional Wrestling Studies Association, a tag team of academics dedicated to the study of wrestling and its fans. At the heart of anyone's experience with professional wrestling is our emotional connection to what it is that we're seeing. Carolyn Reinhardt is the president of the PWSA. She's also an associate professor of communication arts and sciences at Dominican University in Illinois. 
I was never a professional wrestling fan growing up. I know people who were, but I never really paid any attention to it. And it wasn't until I met my partner and he started his master's program that I actually started paying attention to professional wrestling. And he started talking about professional wrestling and hyper-reality, which is a concept that comes out of postmodernism. And as he talked about it, I found it really fascinating. And I started watching professional wrestling that way. I actually started with Main Event from WWE. And I just kind of became a huge fan. That then led us to start this entire academic organization to try to bring together scholars from around the world. Part of what makes pro wrestling so much fun to think about is it sits at this weird little nexus point between fiction and reality. It's fun. Playing with reality is such an important aspect of our lives. There is a word that professional wrestlers and fans use to describe that strange little nexus point, and it's kayfabe. Kayfabe is the stuff you're supposed to believe is true. Kayfabe is essentially a blurring between real and fiction. Entertainment, we think of as pre-constructed, it's, it's predetermined. But with sports, you're not supposed to have any of that. So what kayfabe does in professional wrestling is it essentially blurs that line between sport and fiction. And it can be hard to know then if what you're seeing is real or not. The origins of the word kayfabe are a bit murky. Wrestling insiders have a few theories that it's a sort of pig Latin for be fake, or named for a legendary wrestler who never spoke named kayfabian, or that it was an inscrutable code word that wrestlers would shout out when an outsider or mark would come backstage. Kayfabe used to be a pretty straightforward concept. It was the part of wrestling that non-fans would deride as fake. Not just the punches and body slams, but stuff like this. I walk in Exhibition Stadium and thousands upon thousands of Hulkamaniacs are going crazy. I can't help but say you turned me on, Toronto. I can't wait, especially to get in the ring with Orndorff. That I'm an American brother, and even though I love Canada... Keep your nose out of it, Toronto. This is between me and Mr. Wonderful. That's classic 1980s golden era WWF promo material. One wrestler challenging another, making sure to mention a specific venue where you can go see the show. In this case, it was Hulk Hogan calling out Paul Orndorff, a.k.a. Mr. Wonderful, ahead of their match in Toronto. The writers of the World Wrestling Federation crafted a lovely story between the two of them. Hogan and Orndorff started as good friends, then through a series of misunderstandings and betrayals, became bitter enemies. You thought that I was your friend. You're really dumb! Because Hulk Hogan, I've got you running wild right now. All that stuff, the storylines, the personalities, the rivalries and friendships, that's all part of kayfabe. So kayfabe is essentially this construction of a fictional story and characters, but still placed within the setting of very real, objective, physical contact. So that's the basics of kayfabe, but it's 
changed over the years. In fact, the latest edition of the PWSA Journal is entirely dedicated to the concept of kayfabe, packed with papers trying to understand it and define it and come up with theories on how it works, including an understanding of how kayfabe can help us better understand all kinds of things, from celebrity culture to politics to media. According to Reinhardt, kayfabe is also why pro wrestling has often been seen as lowbrow entertainment with unsophisticated fans. Yeah, that stereotype still does perpetuate. And it's been weakening, I think, more recently. But there is definitely still that perception that professional wrestling fans are lower class, lower educated, more likely to embrace problematic ideologies of racism and jingoism and sexism and transphobia, homophobia, and so on and so forth. The idea of the professional wrestling fan as being lower class and so forth is often because of that kayfabe and the sense that professional wrestling fans must be duped. Well, they must not be very smart if they're being duped by these professional wrestlers. The thing about kayfabe is it's not fakery. It's a fiction that you choose to believe in because that's how you get the most out of it. People have been incredulously telling wrestling fans that it's all fake for over a hundred years. For example, in June of 1877, this article appeared in the Brooklyn Eagle, simply titled, Wrestling. Recently, an expose was made of the frauds committed by contestants in the wrestling arena, but it seems to have little effect in opening the eyes of the sporting public. The plan of these wrestling knaves is to get up an excitement about grand championship matches and a feeling of enmity between rival wrestlers. All this is done to swell gate receipts. The whole game of these wrestlers is so plain that it is surprising it has not been played out long ago. Anything that's part of the show is part of kayfabe, and then anything that's part of the reality behind the show would be thought of as, as what's really happening. So back when wrestling originated, so it originated in, in the kind of carnival setup where they would put on staged matches. And then, you know, the thought was that it had to be presented as if it were real. And then as it kind of moved out of the kind of carnival setting and into more general entertainment settings, that kind of idea of kayfabe was preserved. So the thought was wrestling was presented as a real sport. That's Douglas Edwards. He's a professor of philosophy at Utica University in New York. He has a particular interest in conceptions of truth and is the author of Philosophy Smackdown, a book about the philosophical underpinnings of pro wrestling. So everyone had to keep kayfabe. The wrestlers had to stay in character outside of the shows. So if you were a heel or a bad guy and you went to the bar after the show, you had to kind of play that character still, right? You had to be mean to fans who came up to you. If you were a a baby face or a good guy, then you had to be really nice and, you know, sign the autographs and do all that stuff. And and crucially, people who are feuding in the shows weren't allowed to interact with each other in public outside of them. So if you could be feuding with your best friend, right, who's a bad guy and you're presented as a good guy, you guys couldn't be seen socializing outside of the shows to keep, keep kayfabe, to keep up the appearance that this was all real. 
Well into the 1980s, the WWF took two buses when on tour, one for the faces, the wrestling term for good guys, and one for the heels, the bad guys. But as wrestling grew in popularity, that kind of theatrical kayfabe was hard to maintain. Are the matches fixed? Every one of them's predetermined. Predetermined, what do you mean? Fixed, predetermined. In 1984, reporter John Stossel from the news magazine show 2020 revealed the secrets of wrestling with former pro wrestler Eddie Mansfield. Eddie said he'd teach me how they fake it if I'd go in the ring with him, so I did. I couldn't believe it. I hardly done anything to him, and he flies across the room. You You just take off on your own. Right. While it was presented as an expose, it probably wasn't news to most grown-up pro wrestling fans. But it did make it harder for the company to maintain that fiction. From that report, here's John Stossel talking to WWF chairman Vince McMahon. Is it a legitimate sport? It's not perhaps a legitimate sport in terms of what someone would, would think of in a traditional way. What is it if it's not a sport? I don't know. This was around the time that Douglas Edwards was at home in the UK watching pro wrestling on tape. As kids, we were fully taken in by how it was presented. And then as you get older and older, you kind of start questioning things more and more. But I think that only increased my interest. And as I subsequently discovered as I got older, there's a huge amount of interest from wrestling fans in in what goes on behind the scenes, perhaps more so in some cases than, than what's presented on the screen. I think that one of the things that fascinated me most about philosophy was a a similar thing to kind of what kept me interested in wrestling throughout the years, which is this distinction between appearance and reality. I remember one of my first philosophy classes, just my mind being completely blown by the thought that, you know, the world might not be exactly as it appears to us to be, that our perceptions of things might not accurately map onto how things are. Early on in philosophy class, either in college or high school, you learn the allegory of the cave by Greek philosopher Plato. It's about the distinction between reality and what we perceive as reality. So imagine there's a dark cave, and in the cave are a bunch of captives, chained up so all they can see is one wall. They've lived their whole lives there, and all they've ever seen is that wall. In the middle of the cave, behind them, their captors keep a fire going. That means the prisoners see shadows dancing along the wall. And sometimes, to pass the time, their captors play shadow puppets. They make beasts and birds and people appear on the wall. And so these poor captives believe that what they see on the wall is true. The shadows are animals, the fire is the sun, and the wall is the whole world. But... If only a captive could escape for a moment and turn around, he'd see another layer of reality. The shadows are just puppets, the sun just a fire, and the world just a wall. And if that escapee should leave the cave, he'd see the top layer of reality, what a real animal looks like instead of a puppet, what the sun looks like instead of a fire, and the truth of the world. Interpretations differ, but the main one is... Plato was describing most of humanity as prisoners chained to that wall. And only a few people with hard work are able to escape, see the puppets for what they are, and ascend to learn the truth of the world. Plato would have called those people who escape philosophers. 
but you could also call them wrestling fans. To Douglas Edwards, the joy of watching pro wrestling is that you get to do the same thing, escape those bonds, and see all three layers of reality. This process of understanding what wrestling is as you kind of get older, the one that I experienced, is something that really kind of puts you in contact with these questions about truth and reality. You know, what, what's being presented to you as a genuine kind of athletic competition where they're trying to win a match in the same way that, you know, you'd watch two people trying to win an amateur wrestling match or a boxing match where there's a, there's a goal, which in wrestling is to pin or submit your opponent. And they're both trying to do that. What you're seeing instead is, is the people in the ring working together to produce a, a performance. And then even behind that, you get a third layer of reality where you have this idea that they are not the ones, the wrestlers in the ring are not the ones who ultimately are deciding how the match is going to end or indeed why they're in that ring in the first place. And, and that's decided by the, the wrestling promoter, the company owner or the booker. There are other people who are writing the storylines which dictate why these wrestlers are wrestling who's going to win and, and why and all that sort of stuff. So you get multiple layers of reality when you're watching wrestling. And then there's further questions as well about times in wrestling when it's unclear where the line is between the show and the reality behind the show. And I think that that's what grips a lot of wrestling fans as well as like, whoa, was that, was that quote unquote real, the thing that we just saw? And that's things that really get people fascinated because then you're really thinking about that line between appearance and reality and where is it drawn. So if we're using the allegory of the cave as an allegory for watching wrestling, the shadow puppets are the kayfabe. But unlike the prisoners, it's a voluntary thing, right? In fact, because the wrestlers aren't being duped by anything, the kayfabe is collective. It is maintained by the audience and the performers. The match can be impacted by how the audience is reacting, and definitely in a larger scope, a storyline or even an entire wrestler's career can be impacted by how the audience reacts. For me, this is what makes professional wrestling the most interesting, is just how important the audience interaction with the professional wrestling is. When you get enough people together who love and understand the mechanics of wrestling, you can really see how far kayfabe can go. From parts unknown, weight unmeasurable, this is Invisible Stan, the brother of the Invisible Man. This is an example of how important the fans are to maintaining kayfabe. It's a recording of an indie wrestling show from promoter Game Changer Wrestling in Jersey City, New Jersey, in April of 2019. A packed crowd at the White Eagle Hall. Slide into the ring, being checked for weapons right now by official Bryce Remsburg. He's going to have a tall task ahead of him. A referee named Bryce Remsburg walks into the middle of an empty ring for a special matchup. A round of applause and ovation for the Invisible Man making his way. To the ring. It's between two brothers in a long-standing rivalry, but both brothers are invisible, and only the ref can see them by putting on his special sunglasses. Does that actually enable Bryce Rensburg to see the competitors in this matchup, apparently? 
The ref then guides the audience through a lengthy, exhausting, totally involving wrestling match between the two. It's Invisible Man versus Invisible Stan. Invisible Man pins Invisible Stan, then Stan flips it around and pins Invisible Man. And they're at a standoff! I mean, both these guys, who's going to know somebody better than your own brother? Your own flesh and blood! And every step along the way, the fans are fully invested. At one point, a chair gets involved. Oh, did you hear that one? And then the fight leaves the ring. And these two have taken to the floor. Right I'm fighting, trying to keep up fighting for the people. It eventually ends up in the balcony. You see Ramsburg chasing him up the stairs. The ref tries to stop one wrestler from throwing the other off the balcony. They both tumble over. Out of the balcony, dangerous! That's about a 30-foot fall! And the entire crowd below falls backward in a heap as two non-existent opponents come crashing down. That was a bad landing! It is wrestling, Indito! Come on, it's got The whole thing ends up back in the ring where Invisible Man finally pins that dastardly stand. And for the entire time, there was nobody in that ring but the ref and nobody in the crowd but the fans. You're listening to Keeping Kayfabe, the philosophy of pro wrestling. You can catch ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Kayfabe, the fiction that sustains professional wrestling, has been declared dead many times. Wrestling insiders point to a few moments in the history of the WWE where Kayfabe took a hit and the illusion of wrestling was put at risk. There was that aforementioned 2020 expose in 1984. What about uh, Eddie Mansfield, who, who admits that it's fake? There's sort of a wrestler's code that you never do this, and he did it. None of these people would talk. Then, in 1987, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Hussein Vaziri, the Iron Sheik, were arrested while driving together to a match in New Jersey. The problem was, Duggan was a face or a good guy, and Vaziri was a heel or a bad guy. Here's the sports column from an Austin newspaper the day after their arrest. Hey, wait a minute. Aren't Iron Sheik and Hacksaw arch enemies? Then what were they doing Tuesday night when they were arrested together and charged with drug possession by New Jersey State Police? Friendly foes, I guess. 
kayfabe survived that incident, just like it survived 1989. That's when former WWF chairman Vince McMahon told the New Jersey government that wrestling was just entertainment. McMahon, of course, recently left the organization amid an inquiry into allegations of sexual misconduct and hush money. But back in the 80s, McMahon asked the New Jersey State Senate to exclude pro wrestling from sports regulations and taxes. Here's an op-ed in the New York Post from February 10th. 1989. The promoters of professional wrestling have disclosed that their terrifying towers and spandex tights are really no more dangerous to one another than Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy. But please don't repeat this. Millions of grown men and women just don't want to know. And there was the infamous Montreal screw job in 1997 when McMahon had the referee call a match earlier than planned in order to keep a championship title from departing star Bret Hart. Look at this! Oh, you're kidding me! Are you kidding me? As fans of wrestling grew more sophisticated, kayfabe had to change. As people learned more about what happens backstage, wrestling didn't become any less fictional. It just folded reality into its fiction. Ideas producer Matthew Lazen Ryder looks at the ethics, reality, and multi layered fiction of what happens in the wrestling ring. This is Keeping Kayfabe The Philosophy of Pro Wrestling. The virtue of wrestling is that it is the spectacle of excess. Here we find a grandiloquence which must have been that of ancient theaters. For what makes the circus, or the arena, is not the sky. It's the drenching and vertical quality of the flood of light. Wrestling partakes of the nature of the great solar spectacles. Greek drama, bullfights. In both, a light without shadow generates an emotion without reserve. That's French literary theorist and philosopher Roland Barthes from his 1954 essay, The World of Wrestling. In it, he argues the story of wrestling is the story of justice. But what wrestling is, above all meant to portray, is a purely moral concept, that of justice. The idea of paying is essential to wrestling, and the crowds give it to him means, above all else, make him pay. The baser the action of the bastard, the more delighted the public is by the blow which he justly receives in return. The best stories are about making moral choices. And that exists in wrestling as well. So, for example, you'll see a a good guy be presented with the opportunity to do a bad guy thing. Like cheat to win take a title belt and smack your opponent over the head with it cheat with a steel chair do all the things that we know that bad guys do justin morissette is a sports writer broadcaster and play-by-play guy for nation extreme wrestling in vancouver and we're talking about what separates a face from a heel but sometimes you see the conflict in the heart of a wrestler in the ring they want to win so badly that they know if they cheated they could get it and yet they still make the choice not to do it. To me, that is, that is the ultimate enduring. That is the number one thing that across any generation that is classic pro wrestling, 
to see somebody intentionally make the right decision. You want to cheer for that person. So that's a baby face. What's a heel? A heel is the exact opposite. A heel is a slimy snake who is going to do any underhanded thing to get ahead in life. In the ring, that includes cheating to win, doing all those things I just talked about, using outside weapons, having a manager or, or backup, a stablemate who's by your side, who's going to interfere in the match. They are winning through means that are unfair. And you know what? Life isn't fair quite a lot, but we like to think that athletic competition is. And you might not think that wrestling is an athletic competition, but hey, it, it sort of is. In the ring at this time, the challengers to my left from the Soviet Union, weighing 313 pounds, Nikolai Volkov. A lot of times, if you go back, and look at heels over the decades, it paints a picture of geopolitical struggle over the years as well, because what's the quickest shortcut to making everybody boo someone, have them be from a country that is the global villain at the time? The WWF in particular capitalized on political, economic, and social fears. In the 1980s, the Cold War meant that a proud Russian, like wrestler Nikolai Volkov, made for a great heel. Mr. Volkov requests that you all rise and respect his singing of the Soviet National Anthem. A big part of the face-heel dynamic is something called a turn. It's when a face becomes a heel, by a betrayal or a fall from grace, or a heel becomes a face, a redemption story, like at SummerSlam in 1990 when Volkov decided to become an American citizen. Here's Hacksaw Jim Duggan welcoming him aboard. Nikolai wasn't from Russia at all, but Yugoslavia, and had immigrated to Canada in 1967, where he was trained by Stu Hart, patriarch of the Hart wrestling family. That was a particularly jingoistic turn in WWF history, but most turns have to do with wrestlers succumbing to temptation or getting too greedy or revealing their true vices. Douglas Edwards from Utica University and author of the book Philosophy Smackdown. Wrestling is heavily connected with morality. And I think that what it teaches us is kind of an interesting thing because the attitudes that fans take towards wrestlers and wrestling and the way that characters are portrayed and the things that make them good or bad haven't always remained consistent through time. And I think that that can tell us something about how we view morality through time and, and what we think of as being characteristically good or bad features of individuals. Edwards, philosophy professor that he is, likes to think about heels and faces and ethics, a branch of philosophy concerned with questions on what's good and what's bad, what's right and wrong. In this case, the virtue ethics of Greek philosopher Aristotle. A key component of Aristotle's theory of morality is exhibiting 
a set of characteristics about that being a virtuous person is kind of exhibiting a set of virtues like courage and temperance and truthfulness and honesty and things like that. And that for Aristotle, like each virtue is kind of the midpoint between two vices. So think about courage, for example. Aristotle thinks that, look, courage is kind of the middle ground between rashness on one side. So if somebody's rash, right, that means that they take unnecessary risks that they shouldn't be taking. And then on the other side is cowardice, right? So if someone's cowardly, then they will just be too timid or they won't stand up for themselves in situations that they ought to. And being courageous is the kind of sweet spot between those things. If you're courageous, then you will kind of stand up for yourself and what, and what you believe in, in in situations of danger or for other people in situations of danger. But you won't take crazy unnecessary risks that are you know, guaranteed to ensure your death or something like that. When we think about wrestling characters, what we often find is that the the kind of baby face characters are going to exhibit kind of some or more of Aristotle's virtues and the heels tend to exhibit the vices. It is so hard to be humble when you're looking like Ric Flair. One key example is Ric Flair, especially his run in the 1980s when he was the the National Wrestling Alliance NWA champion. So he was very flamboyant, very over-the-top sort of character in the sense that he would be very ostentatious. He would be spending a lot of money on his outfits, kind of showing off his wealth, kind of rubbing it in the fans' faces that he had more than them. You see, I'm custom-made with the clothes. I got the big Rolex watches. I got everything that's going on. I'm the best-looking man alive. Your standard example of a baby face in more recent wrestling would be John Cena person's character is not judged when they ride the wave of success when everyone chants their name and you want to be their friend no your character is put to the test when your back is against the wall the john cena character is supposed to be hitting that middle ground of courage between cowardice and rashness you know you can kind of try to plot different wrestling characters and the way that they exhibit heel or babyface characteristics in terms of Aristotle's taxonomy of the virtues and their corresponding vices. A problem for Aristotle's virtue ethics, at least in the wrestling ring, is sometimes the heels win. Sometimes we want the heels to win. So what good is being a face in life when the heels get ahead? On the kind of Aristotelian view, the thought is that the reward of being virtuous is built in, in that to flourish as a human being and to be happy in a genuine sense, requires being virtuous. So Aristotle would say that the people who appear to be living great lives, even though they exhibit lots of vices, uh, are actually failing as human beings. They're not flourishing. They're not genuinely happy, no matter how much they might report that. Obviously, the way that a lot of people measure success in life now in terms of money, influence, property accumulation, all that sort of thing, it's probably easier to succeed in all of that if you exhibit lots of vices. Seems a little question about that. But does that constitute a flourishing human life? Is that what we should be trying to do when we're thinking about a life well-led? And Aristotle's thought would be that, no, you know, look, that cultivating the virtues is something that will lead to a more fulfilling life for a person. And that people who focus on vices and achieve other things as a result of that may appear to be happy and flourishing, but they're really failing as human beings.
there's one more thing to talk about when it comes to heels, faces, and kayfabe, and how it all comes together. It's a story of how a guy who was supposed to be a heel ended up being a babyface, and how a man who wasn't even a wrestler became the industry's biggest heel. In the late 1990s, fans of pro wrestling were getting tired of the same old good guy, bad guy routine, and tastes in morality would end up affecting the supposed truth of professional wrestling. There ain't nobody in wrestling who can make me quit, and that's the bottom line, cause Stone Cold said so. It starts with a wrestler who would rise to massive popularity, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, so his rise to enormous success in the late 1990s in the WWF was, I think, part of a general disruption of the traditional wrestling kind of babyface heel characteristics. So Austin came along and was originally like a really nasty heel character, like a vicious, different from Flair. Flair was more of a cowardly heel. Austin was more of a vicious heel. He was an incredibly mean character. And um, during his feud with, with Bret Hart in late 1996, early 1997, what started to happen was that people really started to take Austin's side. They appreciated certain characteristics that, I, that he had, like his kind of brashness, his meanness, his relentlessness when he was going after Bret Hart. And, it, and Bret Hart, who had been playing a more traditional babyface character, the fans were starting to, to, to get a bit tired of that. So got this interesting situation where Austin's heel character, if you look at it in terms of the traditional Aristotelian sense, right? He was a heel and Bret Hart's baby face exhibiting the Aristotelian virtues. Fans started to cheer the heel and boo the baby face. And they actually kind of officially kind of switched them around to those heel and baby face roles. But they didn't change his character. So they didn't make him any nicer. They didn't, you know, get rid of the stuff that would traditionally have made him a heel. While heels were traditionally the ones that broke the rules, Something was in the air at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st that made rule followers seem less heroic than rule breakers. And it came just at the time when viewers were learning who makes the rules of pro wrestling. It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. In December of 1997, Vince McMahon and the WWF decided to embrace the fact that people were as interested in what was going on behind the scenes as what was in the ring. In a recorded statement before an episode of Monday Night Raw, McMahon said this. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope, so to speak, in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. We borrow from such program niches like soap operas, like the days of our lives, or music videos such as those on MTV, daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer and others. We in the WWF think that you, the audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. Surely the era of the superhero who urged you to say your prayers and take your vitamins is definitely passe. That moment is the birth of what's called the Attitude Era, where the powers that be of wrestling would acknowledge that what ended up in the ring was a result of contract negotiations and marketing and scripting. And Vince McMahon would represent the business side of wrestling as a character in the wrestling show. And Austin... The thought of you representing the World Wrestling Federation just makes me wretch with emotional trauma. 
is the intersection of reality and fiction because it's the first time really that Vince, who's been an on-screen character, the play-by-play man on a number of the early pay-per-views, he's been an on-screen character, but it's never acknowledged who he actually is. Instead of chucking kayfabe out the window, the WWE expanded it, folding the top layer of reality into the bottom layer of the fiction. I would like to say to Vince McMahon, you spent the last four months of your life trying to take this belt away from Stone Cold Steve Austin. In this new era of wrestling, the conflict wasn't just rivalries and fallouts between friends. It was the contracts between the company and each wrestler, the decisions about who wins and loses, the competition for ratings between the WWE and its competitors all becomes part of the story. Yeah, chant for him all you want. I'm willing to put in writing, Austin, but I will never ever again, directly or indirectly, interfere, compromise, or in any way have anything at all to do with you here in the World Wrestling Federation ever again. Are you interested? And the stakes are getting higher here. And McMahon becomes the biggest heel on the show, the embodiment of cold capitalism, undercutting his wrestlers, threatening to tear up contracts and trying to fix the matches. Suddenly, a rule-breaking, working-class guy like Stone Cold Steve Austin makes a lot of sense as a face when he's up against the rigged system of rich and powerful heel Mr. McMahon. I'm not going to have you telling me every single week what I can and what I can't do. I ain't going to wear your stupid little suits. I ain't going to do none of that. Who's the biggest villain? If you are a working class person who's coming home to watch television at the end of a long work day in 1997, you know, you probably had some encounters with uh, a customer or two that might have rubbed you the wrong way over the course of the day. But overall, on a week to week basis, who is the number one person creating problems in your life? For a lot of people, it's their boss. That's like the number one antagonist in their life. That's the person that is preventing them from getting what they want. That's the person who is, you know, having to discipline them for things that they feel are unfair or whatever, you know, like we've all had conflicts with a boss at one point or another. And a lot of times that's the number one person that you have to grovel towards that you have to put a brave face on to put on this fake smile and act like everything's great because the only way to get ahead is in corporate culture to, to suck up basically. Well, you don't want to do that. Sometimes your boss makes you feel the opposite way. What you want to do is crack open a ton of beers and go raise hell. And Stone Cold Steve Austin becomes this, even though he's acting like a villain, even though he's doing things that in reality would get you arrested for assault. And what he's really representing is basically the untamed id of working class America. This person that we all wish that we could be, but for the reasons of politeness in society, we can never indulge in these impulses at all. But for two hours a week, every Monday night, you can turn on the TV and watch him do exactly what you wish you could at your job. Vince McMahon is no longer the head of the WWE. He retired in 2022. The board of directors of the WWE, just months earlier, began an investigation into hush money allegedly paid by McMahon to cover an affair as well as other payments made to silence claims of sexual harassment and misconduct.
in wrestling, nothing exists except in the absolute. Everything is presented exhaustively. This grandiloquence is nothing but the popular and age-old image of the perfect intelligibility of reality. What is portrayed by wrestling is therefore an ideal understanding of things. There are two more words used to navigate the reality of wrestling. They are work and shoot. A work is something fictional, presented as real. A shoot is when something real happens in the middle of the fiction. A wrestler actually hits another one, or a performer really does snap at their boss. I like to think that pro wrestling as a whole is, is, a, is a net good as far as something to be interested in because of the way it prepares you to interact with the world at large. It is presenting you with the artifice up front, whereas everything else is concealing it. Everything is a work on some level. Nothing is exactly as it's being presented to you. But with pro wrestling, you know that you're being sold something. Whereas, you know, because I have a background in wrestling and know or at least kind of get that spider sense tingly feeling when I might be being exposed to something that's not real, that's a, that's a work and not a shoot, as it were. You know, I, I see things in politics and I immediately I'm like, that's a work. I'm not. <laughs> that's fake. Politicians are not the best at it. But but I mean, yeah, all of politics is trying to sell you on something to earn your vote. Right. We're going to tell you exactly what you want to hear and then not deliver it at all once we actually get the thing that we want from you. So in wrestling terminology, when the liberals promised that election of 2015 <laughs> would be the last under first past the post, that was a work is what you're saying. That was, that was a work. Yeah, I might call it a work. You might call it a dusty finish as well, which is uh, Dusty Rhodes was famous for for winning the championship and then having to surrender it on a technicality for uh, it got pulled out from under him and you didn't actually get what you wanted in the end, That's, that might be, you could use that to apply it to politics too. You know, what's part of kayfabe in politics, right? So people will say the things they're required to say because of their party affiliation or because they that's what they think their voters will want. But there's always kind of this question of like, well, do they really think that? What are their real views? And and sometimes it's kind of hard to to figure that out. I remember after the after the 2020 presidential election in the US, there was obviously the, the big furor about the legitimacy of, of Biden and Harris's election. And then seeing this footage from the, from the Senate floor of Kamala Harris fist bumping Lindsey Graham, who was one of the Republicans who was at the time calling doubts on the legitimacy of her, of her election. And that made me think, that seems kind of like a very wrestling sort of thing, right? On screen, that person is saying, this person is not the legitimate vice president or there are question marks about this. And then in private, as it were, there's this acknowledgement, congratulations. But it can also turn negative in that if you keep thinking that you always have to keep digging and you're never satisfied with any sort of aspect of reality, there's fertile ground for things like conspiracy theories, which can lead to pretty disastrous consequences. Beyond helping us understand politics and conspiracy theories, maybe kayfabe can help us better understand ourselves. Here's Carrie Lynn Reinhardt again, professor at Dominican University and president of the Pro Wrestling Studies Association. I think kayfabe applies to any time that you see people working on their performance and how they want to present themselves to other people. 
in that sense that we will perform and act in certain ways based on how we think people will interpret them so that we will be seen a certain way by other people. And that way we perform, it may not be authentic or genuine to what we consider to be our true self, our core self, but we do so just like a wrestler would to get over or to get heat. Getting over is when you have the audience believing your gimmick and getting heat is when you've got them all riled up. If you're a heel, it means you've successfully made them hate you. Back in Vancouver, Adam Ryder, wrestling as the hide a heartthrob, finds joy and validation in getting over and getting heat. It's always kind of deep, deep in there, right? I love wrestling because, one, I love entertaining it. For the pantomime, you got to get them to boo. Oh, you got to get them to cheer. I like what I can what I can get with the audience, whether I am the bad guy, good guy, they're doing what I'm wanting them to do. I like being good at my job. It validates me, who I am. I like being the best at making everybody happy. Even if I'm not the guy who's to steal the show for the night, maybe that's not my job. And that's okay. I don't have to do that job. I have to be the, I'm the opener. I'm going to be the best friggin' opener. I'm the second on the card. I'm the best second on the card. Before intermission, intermission, yeah. I Maybe just after intermission. I will be the best at that wherever I'm put, and I take pride in that and being able to do that. Roland Bart, critic and philosopher, ended his journey through the wrestling halls of Paris like this. When the hero or the villain of the drama, the man who was seen a few minutes earlier possessed by moral rage, leaves the wrestling hall, impassive, anonymous, carrying a small suitcase and arm-in-arm with his wife, no one can doubt that wrestling holds that power of transmutation, which is common to the spectacle and to religious worship. In the ring, wrestlers remain gods, because they are, for a few moments, the key which opens nature, the pure gesture which separates good from evil and unveils the form of justice. You are listening to Keeping Kayfabe by Matthew Lazen Ryder. Special thanks to Tim Weeks, Greg Kelly, Matt Humphrey, Jeff Turner, and Liam Britton for lending their voices. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.